Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. And that's a little bit of a provocative video, right? Uh, can we just, uh, we, we have a, a video team in-house that makes all of these, uh, these videos, these bumper series uh, intros for us, just to kind of create the right tone and the right vibe to set up the series. Can we give them just a round of applause, a thank you to that team? They do such a fantastic job. It is a provocative uh, series that we're in right now called Jesus Hates, and that's intentionally so. So the idea of this series is, uh, is a bit of a corrective, because a lot of the time we talk about the, the, the meek and mild, gentle Jesus, right? The kind of the Jesus that, that wouldn't dare to tell anybody, let alone me or you or anybody else, how to live their lives, right? It's a, the kind of Jesus that, that, that wouldn't dream of, of telling me that, that maybe the way that I'm living my life isn't appropriate or isn't God honoring or the way that I uh, treat other people or what I do with my body, right? Because he's a, he's a meek and mild, gentle Jesus. Well, in this series, we're, we're kind of pushing back on that quite a bit. And we're saying there's some things, not people, but there's some things that Jesus couldn't stand, that, that got him all worked up, that, that kind of got that like, like vein in his neck to start, start popping a little bit because he just, he got angry and he got upset. And we see time and time again that he was the kind of person that got angry at some things. In fact, in fact he, was, he was even hating some things. And as we kind of get into this, we, we want to push back really, really hard on this idea that wherever Jesus goes, he's always the most decaffeinated person in the room. You know what I'm talking about? He's like, there's a storm on the water, right? And the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, and the disciples are running around going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And Jesus is like down below, and he's just sleeping. And you're going, come on, man. Or, or like in the garden, right, where uh, the, uh, the disciples are on Thursday. He's getting arrested, right? He's going to die tomorrow, and he knows that. And then the, the Roman soldiers come up, and Peter draws a sword, First of all, Peter draws a sword, and it's like, dude, you're following the Son of God. You feel like you need a little added protection? But anyway, he draws a sword because he's a bad shot. He takes a swing, and he cuts the guy's ear off. Well, Jesus is the one that like, reach it up and attach it back on. But because he's the meek and mild, gentle Jesus, you just sort of assume that as his outstretched arm attaches the ear back, he's got, he's got hummingbirds and butterflies that like land on it. That's Jesus. Well, there was one story in particular that, that just... John wanted to tell us about. And he goes, listen, I followed this guy around. For three years, I lived with him. I worked with him. I was around him constantly. And he was, he was meek. And he was mild. And he was gentle. But John tells us, no, there was something about him too that just got him all worked up. He just reserved anger for some things in this world that just, they simply deserved it. And I want to tell you about one of those. By the way, we have, uh, we have uh, Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Um, you can go ahead and pull that out. We're going to go to the very beginning of the gospel, the Jesus story according to John. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, go ahead and take that with you. In fact, I just told earlier this week that we gave away so many Bibles that we actually needed to put another order in, which I thought was pretty awesome. I mean, we love that sanctified theft. Go ahead and take it. In the name of Jesus, it's, it's yours. Um, okay, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. We also have a tradition here at Encounter that uh, whenever we dig into the Word on Sunday mornings, uh, we, we tend to stick with like one Bible passage. 
So we're going to go deep on this passage to try to understand a little bit more about what the author, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wanted us to know about our Savior, Jesus. And and he starts it off this way in John chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem. No matter which direction you were coming from, you'd always go up because Jerusalem was about 3,500 feet above sea level in an area of the world famous for being below sea level. It didn't matter when you're walking on foot. If it was north, south, east, it never went over to Jerusalem. You never went down to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem. Uh, later, we also see that it's uh, during the Passover time. Three things about Passover time of why John wants to like set this at this particular time of why it's important. The first thing about Passover that we have to understand is that this is a religious holiday that celebrated the freedom of God's people. So, so just kind of like frame that in your mind. Whatever happens here, what was supposed to happen is that the people were supposed to get together and celebrate freedom from slavery, th- freedom from bondage, freedom from the, uh, the Egyptians. The, when they were stuck, the Israelites, you can read about that in the book Exodus. They exited the 10 plagues, blood on the doorposts, and the angel of death came over and passed over, so they called it the Passover celebration. When they didn't die, their lives were spared. That was the final straw, and, and Pharaoh finally let them go later on into their promised land. This is the holiday that celebrates their own freedom as individuals, as, an, as a community, as having an identity. It's about freedom, Passover. Keep that in mind. Tuck that away. It's going to be important a little bit later. The second thing about Passover we have to understand is that every good religious person participates, or at least was supposed to participate. Maybe not all of them did, but the good ones were supposed to. Every Jewish male was supposed to go over to Jerusalem during the Passover and offer up a sacrifice. That's important to know because it makes Jerusalem like massively swell in size, two, three times the population. You thought Grand Rapids during Art Prize was congested Nothing on Jerusalem during Passover celebration. Tons of people. It's loud. It's dirty. It's crowded. There's people everywhere. That's Passover time. The last thing about Passover that we have to understand is that everybody was supposed to offer a sacrifice. All right, but, but some people, everybody was supposed to offer a sacrifice. Uh, it, it was uh, an unblemished lamb was standard. If you were wealthy, uh, then you would also offer a cow. If you were poor, you could switch the unblemished land for unblemished a couple of doves. If you were really, really poor, then you could swap those out for a couple of pigeons. Everybody was supposed to offer a sacrifice. This is the way of like drilling into their minds what this, uh, that, that sin had a cost. And a sacrifice had to be made to pay for the cost. God was like setting his people up for the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Sin has a cost. Jesus, being a good religious guy that he is, also goes along with the other good religious men to Jerusalem, presumably to offer up a sacrifice when the story continues in verse 14. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. Uh, John wants us to know this takes place in the temple courts, which is also kind of, a, kind of an important detail that's happening, not just around, but actually within the temple. 
Solomon in the Old Testament built the temple. King Solomon, it was destroyed. And then Herod in the New Testament um, built a new temple. Herod wasn't a great guy. He wasn't a particularly spiritual or even religious person. Uh, He was just simply a puppet of the Roman overlords there to sort of keep the peace and calm. He also prided himself as something of an architect and he liked to build things. He built a magnificent temple. In fact, some people call it one of the wonders of the ancient world. Others call it just a monumental architectural feat. The religious establishment in Jerusalem, you can imagine, didn't love their Roman overlord, a puppet governor called Herod. They didn't love him, but they had to at least give him respect where respect was due. One of the rabbis of the time wrote that you haven't seen a beautiful building until you've seen King Herod's temple. You just must think about how he would cringe having to write those words, but he did. Respect where respect is due. It was a magnificent structure. On the inside, it was a a most holy place where only the high priest, only on the day of atonement would go in. Outside of that was the holy place where uh, the priests were, only the priests were allowed to go in. Outside of that was the inner court where good Jewish men were allowed to go. Outside of that was the court of women where good Jewish women were allowed to go up to. Outside of that was the court of Gentiles. That's what we're talking about today, that court of Gentiles. This was made as a place where non, uh, non-Jewish believers could come and at least be exposed to the word of God and the worship of God. This is like an evangelistic area where people who are maybe curious could come on the periphery and just sort of like see what was happening, even if they didn't come in, to just check it out. It was also the area that in Jesus' day was filled with booths, changing money, and selling animals. And see, the reason why they sold animals, again, it's 3,500 feet above sea level. You're supposed to take a lamb with you. You're coming from maybe 10, maybe 30 miles away on foot traveling with a ram. Have you ever traveled uphill with a lamb on foot for 20 miles? Please, if anybody has, I'm super curious. No, of course not. Um, if you, you don't travel uh, with animals too much. I traveled one time with my, uh, with my daughter's goldfish. We were dropping her off at her grandma's house as we were going on vacation. I couldn't drive five miles without getting out with a, with a wet lap. I couldn't imagine traveling with a lamb along the way. So, so what do they do? Uh, they did what most of us would do. Uh, we're not going to bring one from home. I think we're just going to buy one when we get there. And they show up, and there's lots of availability. Uh, supply is high. Demand is almost as high, right? They, they've got the animals there, but they go from like booth to booth to booth. It's very expensive, why is it so expensive? Well, these, these lambs here, these, these are certified. What do you mean they're certified? Um, well, you're supposed to offer a blemish-free lamb, you know, without spots on it. So what they did, and this is a true story, they actually sent some of their rabbis after like rabbi school. They would then go for 18 months and they'd live on a farm where they learned to identify quickly what animals were, were blemished. They even learned to identify what animals would later develop blemishes, even if they didn't present, even if they didn't show any blemishes in that moment, so that when it got to be Passover time and a whole bunch of people needed to buy a whole bunch of these animals, they could go, why are they so expensive? Because they're certified. You don't want to buy or offer up a sacrifice of an uncertified lamb, do you? Of course, 
course not. How much does it cost? Exorbitant prices. There was also a tax on top of that. And, uh, and, and the tax, the temple tax, we think, like, this is horrible. And it was. Uh, but to offer, like, uh, to charge a tax to, like, come into worship or something like that. We would never think about charging admission at the door. Uh, but what they did instead, uh, they charged this little tax, not something overbearing. It's maybe 40, 50 cents of today's equivalent. So it's not a lot of money. What they did instead was to require the money to be paid, the, the temple tax to be paid in a very particular local currency known as a Tyrian. You see, a Tyrian is a coin that had uh, a, a considerably high silver uh, allocation in the coin itself so that if they got a new emperor or a new king and that new emperor, that new king minted new money, that's fine. We've got a plan. We can just melt the old coins down and at least have the silver from it. Uh, we need temple tax to be paid in Tyrian only. Where do I get that? We're happy to provide you with the local currency for a fee. The fee was two hours of labor. It was equivalent to two hours of hard labor per coin. Somebody would show up with maybe a two-shekel coin. I need this turned into uh, the four Tyrian so I can pay my tax and come into the temple. They'd say, absolutely, uh, four coins. That's going to be eight hours. It's a whole day's equivalent of a transaction fee in order to pay a 40 or 50 cent temple tax. You start to see what, what is rising, raising the, the blood pressure of our Lord and Savior Jesus on this as he's starting to get a, li a little angry at, at what's going on in here. But I think one of the things that set him off most is that no matter where you go, what booth that you went to, the prices all seemed like they were the same. Like there was a flat fee or flat rate just dictated from some like central. It's like it's not, it's the, the, the supply and demand, it isn't bending to the rules of economics one-on-one at all. What, well, there some, must be some other forces at work here. Yeah. Anybody who's been to Disney World know how that, that works. I went to Disney World. I took my kids there a couple of years ago, and I didn't care about the rides or the princesses to see. We was just a lot of standing in line. I just had one thing, one goal that I wanted to achieve while at Disney World, and that was to get one of those awesome turkey legs, right, that are like novelty size. I, that's the only thing I wanted is a novelty turkey leg. Just give me one of those, and I, I'm good. Get my picture taken. Disney, check it off the list. So I'm going up, get to the front of the line, right? Like I'm just, I, you know, see one of these, I see all these dads walking around with turkey legs. I want one. I'm a dad, so let's, let's get me one. Yeah, it'll be like $15. I'm like, for a turkey leg? Are you kidding me? Yes, but you're for this salty drumstick, you're also going to want a $5 box or a $5 water as well. Oh my word. So it's like, no way. I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'm going to go to somebody else to get my turkey leg. And so I can walk all the way across the park and I finally found a different stand. And the guy's like, yeah, $15 plus five for the water. <laughs> if I didn't know any better, I would think that Disney World set the rates of all of those turkey legs. <laughs> Because they knew every dad in that park wants to get their picture taken with one. And of course they did, right? We, we just assumed that to be true. But what's a little more disgusting and a little bit more about what makes Jesus so angry is that the temple did too. One of the commentators of the day, a historian, 
uh, very sarcastically referred to that outer courts of the temple as the bazaars of Annas. Annas was the high priest. And everybody just knew. Everybody uh, simply understood that Annas himself as the high priest personally leased out the booths to sell stuff outside the inner court of the temple. So that if anybody wanted anything, they'd have to go through one of the people at the booths that Annas himself had hired and leased out. And he got to set the weight, the rate. He got to set the fees. He got to set everything. It even came to the point where a few years before the ministry of Jesus, the temple was robbed. Under the cover of darkness, somebody stole the equivalent of today's value in gold and silver of $20 million. But that's not the kicker. The kicker is that nobody at the temple hardly even noticed. That's how effective they were. And that was all built off from the backs of the religious devout who came simply to offer their pigeons or offer their lamb like they were instructed at a young age to do. And Jesus, his temperature is rising. The vein is starting to pop more. John's looking over and going, I know what's about to happen. And you don't, John, because this thing is about to fly off the handle. Listen to what Jesus does next. Verse 15, so Jesus He made a a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is angry. Jesus, he is fuming mad. He's turning over tables. He makes a whip, right? Just to to drive home his point. He will not stand for this. This is not like, like, like the picture that many of us have of the meek and mild, gentle Jesus. He is still meek and mild and gentle, but this is a Jesus who hates something that's happening there. What do we learn from a story like this? A couple things. The first one is that Christianity is not about being nice. Now, we think a lot of the time that, that, that like all of this, this love stuff in the Bible simply boils down, distills down into just, you know, if you're just a really nice guy or a nice woman, like that's all that God is really asking for you, to be a nice guy, like Jesus was a nice guy, and to wear a smile, and, and to do whatever, whatever somebody would, would want you to do, and don't think about ever telling somebody else like how to live their life, because Jesus would never tell somebody how to live their life, because Jesus is such a nice guy. And Christianity, though, we see, is not about simply being nice. So this is kind of confusing, but uh, John, who wrote this, also wrote a, a, a letter, an open letter called an epistle later on. And in 1 John, one of his first open letters that he wrote that the church has, um, he writes that God is love. All right, well, later, or uh, a different time, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, and we see, uh, we see that love is patient and kind. 
and a lot more, but we don't see nice on that list. We see kind, and that's maybe close. We think it's maybe the same. And, and, and by the, listen here, by the transitive property, you could also say that God is love is nice. God is not, or God is kind, I should say, but not nice. By the way, that took us back to like sophomore year geometry, the whole transitive. You can Google that later. It's pretty great. Just want to get credit that I showed up to class that day. Uh, he's kind, but he's not nice. You see, the difference between being nice and being kind is the difference between the outside and the inside. Because being nice means wearing a smile all the time. Being nice means being polite. Being nice means don't ruffle any feathers. Being nice means don't, don't make things awkward or keep the peace or just keep things kind of moving along. But being kind is on the inside. Being kind is actually caring about somebody. Being kind is challenging somebody if they're participating in something that may hurt them or someone else. Being kind cares about the inside as well. Being nice is seeing a a beggar as you pass on the street and giving them a couple of dollars. Being kind is inviting them in for a hot dog and a conversation where you can get to know them. Being nice says, hi, how's it going? Being kind says, no, seriously, how are you? I want to know. It's the difference between being nice and being kind. We see that God is love. Love is kind. But it says nothing about being nice. And we see it in the heart of God in Jesus Christ that he is not just nice as he's fashioning a whip. And this isn't even the only time this happens. Uh, the, the chapter that this is coming in, John chapter 2. This is like right in the beginning of, John's like, okay, there's a wedding of Cana where Jesus kind of had his like, hey, I'm a Messiah, water to wine kind of thing, paraphrasing. And then this story, right at the beginning, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell a similar story, except for for them, this story took place at the very end of his ministry, thereby kind of opening up the possibility and and sort of the understanding among most scholars, this wasn't the first, or this was the first time of two times that we know of that Jesus went to the temple during Passover and kind of lost it on everybody there. He wasn't nice. Instance after instance, uh, Mark tells a story in Mark chapter 3 where uh, some friends bring in a Jesus, a paralyzed man, and Jesus tells the guy who's paralyzed, stand up, walk, and he did. But, but this crowd comes over, and they're upset because, because he did it on the wrong day. He did it on the weekend, on the Sabbath when he was supposed to be resting, and, and he healed the guy, but, but on the wrong day. And Mark says, you know, I remember I looked over and I saw Jesus looking at the crowd in anger. That's Jesus, kind, but not nice. The, the same kind of Jesus that turns to Peter and says, after Peter made a, a comment he shouldn't have, get behind me, Satan. It's the kind of Jesus that, that says, hey, I've got a message for Herod. Tell him, uh, you tell that fox. He looks at the religious leaders and he calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them a whitewashed tomb, nice and pretty and delicate on the outside, but on the inside a festering, rotting corpse. That's Jesus. He may not be nice, but he's kind He loves them, and he's willing to say the things that need to be said to keep them from harm, either themselves or someone else or their God. 
Christianity is not about being nice, is the first one. The second one, point that we learn from all this, and this is hard, but I think if we love God, we ought to love the things that God loved, but hate the things that God hates. And I think if we say that we love people, we have to hate injustice on those people. A story about some of that that I heard uh, sitting next to a gentleman at a conference a few years back, and he was telling me, he goes, I don't know, Dirk, I don't know what to do with this story. It's just one of those things that gnaws at me. I don't know who the villain is or who the good guy is or, or what my role is in any of this, but it's just one of, those, one of those things that really, really bothers me about the world. And he's telling me this story. He goes, you know, my family immigrated when I was a kid. We immigrated from Northern Europe, the Netherlands area, and, and, uh, and we settled in uh, just outside of Toronto. And he goes, when I was in my like 20s or so, you know, I went to college and graduate school. I never really had much of a uh, of, a, of a like salaried job, but it was the, it was the time uh, in my life, in my like late 20s, where it was probably time for me to buy a house. So I found a house in Toronto in the 1970s for about $30,000, which, okay, it's just calm there. Houses are more now. Um, <laughs> because I really wanted this thing, you know, and uh, I didn't have much of a job, kind of unofficial, but I went to the bank and I happened to know my banker, he goes, uh, it, as it turns out, the guy was, uh, the loan officer was a part of the same like Dutch Reformed church that I was. And so we kind of like talked about that for a while. And, and even though I didn't really have paperwork or like a, like a full-time job, much of a salary, you know, he just said, I kind of know you and I, and I know your family and your people. And so, you know what? I'm going to give you the loan. And he's like, that's fantastic. Well, something happened and they all of a sudden, uh, he and one other party got into a bidding war. Uh, over that same house, a uh, different uh, client with a different loan officer, bank entirely, and he didn't know much about them. Uh, to nuance the story, he knew it was a woman, and he knew it was the black woman in the 1970s. She did have a full-time job with a salary. On paper, she was way more qualified to buy the home than he was, except for her loan officer played it exactly by the letter of the law. Uh, these are the formula. These are your numbers. This is exactly what I can qualify you up to. And this guy just went over. And so this person that I was sitting next to, this gentleman, he was the one that bought the house. That was in the 1970s. He goes, I'm getting ready to sell the house, downsize, move into an assisted living, older age. And I guess I just, what bothers me about it is that the realtors are, are telling me that the home is, is now valued at close to a million dollars red-hot Toronto real estate over 40, 50 years. He goes, I, uh, I'm, I'm living a very comfortable life today, which is what rich people say when they're rich. <laughs> comfortable. And he goes, I don't know whatever happened to that woman. I, I don't know. I don't know if she would ever got to buy a house. Certainly not this one. But, but there was this accumulation of just significant wealth that took place through no fault of, or genius of my own. It just sort of, it was time for me to buy a house. And I just don't know what to do with that. And I could just see that's one little way multiplied over countless other times and ways. And it just, I look at the whole thing and it kind of makes me sick. 
and I hate it. I don't know who's at fault, loan officer or that loan. Me, if I should have said no, I didn't even know what I was up against. I guess I just, the word that I use to describe it would simply be, it seems unjust. It just seems unjust. I don't like it. I don't think God likes it either. In fact, I think God is calling some people to step into those gaps and say, we need to do better. We need to figure out a better system, a better way. Because it's not okay for that sort of thing to happen and to keep on happening. And for Jesus walking into that temple that one day, I think, I think he walked into something and he just saw poor people and worse off people, spiritually indifferent kinds of people who are just being taken advantage of and driven away and saying, God has you have no place with God. You don't get to experience it because you're one of the out group. You're not like us. And I think it drove Jesus, it drives God fuming angry. And he hates it. And I think you would look at the community today, you look at the church today, and you say anything, anything that drives a wedge, that puts up a wall or a barrier in between us and God, I want it gone. I want it ripped down. I want it torn this is why, by the way, when you come to church, we don't charge for anything here. You ever think about how wild that is? Like, you, you come in, and instead of being charged admission at the door, like, we just hand you a program, right? And then you come in, and then we get a cup of coffee and a latte and a bagel and a cookie. And let's be honest, you go back and get three more cookies and then come into, come into worship. And these, this worship team has been, has been tirelessly training and, and rehearsing and practicing to make sure that, that nothing is a distraction to you being able to experience God as well as we possibly can. And then we give away the messages. You want to join a small group? There's like a $5 fee to buy the book. But we're not going to, if you can't pay for it, like just say something and we're done. It's, it's not a problem. We give away everything around here. That's, like, that's what we do. That's what the church does. And we all band together and make sure that Finances aren't a barrier for really any kind of participation in the church. Because we're trying to rip down, tear down any kind of walls, any kind of barriers that are put in between you and God. That's what Jesus would have had us do. That's what Jesus has us do. And there's one significant barrier called sin between us and God that he wants to do away with once and for all, that he went, did away with once and for all on the cross. And he says, this is the thing that I just cannot stand anymore. I will not have it, not in the temple, but even more than that, not in your life today. Something needs to happen. So Jesus did something. Verse 18, the Jews responded to him. And they said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Wow. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. It's actually, it just has taken so far, 46 years. The temple wouldn't be done for another couple of decades yet, um, but that's beside the point. When are you, uh, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body after he was raised from the dead, his disciples, they remembered, they recalled what he had said. 46 years they've been working on this temple. It was going to get done a couple other decade, decades after that, just in time for this Jewish revolt to break out in Jerusalem and for Rome to just be tired of dealing with these people all the time. So they sent the full weight of the Roman military with the explicit, explicit command to go to the temple first. And to not leave two stones on top of each other. Destroy it all. I want it done. Because Rome knew 
That if you took away the center of religious life, you took away the identity of the people. And Jesus, writing about this, predicting this, is preparing them and preparing us and saying, without a temple, that's okay. Because a temple was only there to remind you that I am now here. You don't need a temple anymore because I went into the tomb for three days and I rebuilt it uh, on Friday, on Saturday, and on Sunday and raised to life again. His disciples, they remembered what he had said here. And they go, that's right. That's right. We don't need a most holy place because we have the most holy one, Jesus. We don't need a once in uh, a sacrifice every year. We have a once and for all sacrifice named Jesus. We don't need to go to the temple to experience the presence of God. We need to go to Jesus in prayer, and there we experience God himself in Jesus Christ. We, we don't need and we don't look for a holy land. We, we have a holy man. His name is Jesus. We don't need to depend on a temple for the center of religious and spiritual and communal identity because here we keep Jesus at the center. We don't need to to go to a temple for the, the presence of God. The presence of God isn't at a place. The presence of God is a person, and his name is Jesus. That's what it's about. And so Jesus says, there is something in your life that's keeping you from me, and I hate it, and I want it to be done and over with and gone, and I'll do anything I can to get rid of it. And we think, Jesus, aren't you overreacting just a little? I mean, making a whip? No. It's not that I hate the temple. It's that I love it. And I love you. This is one of those stories that I read uh, a few years ago, and I just, I marked it because it's the most bizarre kind of story, and I knew I wanted to share it with you. Um, it's a true story. October 2003, police responded to a man in a Harlem apartment building lobby holding his arm uh, broken and, and bleeding. And they asked him what happened and he said, my puppy turned on me and bit me. Well, looking at the arm, they had a suspicion this is probably a little bit more than a puppy. And so they, as they go into his apartment to check it out, uh, they do so cautiously. As New York's finest, they creep open the door just a little to, to take a peek at what's inside. And what they see, in all honesty, is a 500-pound Bengal tiger pacing back and forth in the Harlem apartment building. Close the door. <laughs> what they did is they sent an officer rappelling from the roof, armed with an M4 rifle, cracked open the window to tranquilize the tiger from outside. An animal control expert said the tiger looked healthy and well-fed. Why do I tell you the story about a 500-pound Bengal tiger? I think there's something in your life. Sin. And you look at it, and it's just a little puppy. And it didn't want to hurt you. And it wouldn't dream of hurting anybody else in your life. And so you just keep it around. Maybe I'm not supposed to have it in my apartment, but it's not hurting anybody. And then it grows and grows and grows. Jesus looks on this thing and saying, 
This isn't just a little puppy anymore. This thing is a 500-pound Bengal tiger, and it will devour you if it had the chance. I want to save your life. I think that if we saw sin that divides us from God the same way that Jesus sees sin, we would understand the series. Jesus hates. If I just stand up, let's pray together. Gracious God, there's something in our lives and in our hearts that you, you don't like. It doesn't belong there. God, there's a wedge that keeps us from you. God, maybe it's greed or maybe it's lust or maybe it's pride. God, give us the courage to hand it over to you. God, to, the courage to see it the same way you see it and to get angry about it and even to turn tables over in our lives and to, to give things up because it doesn't belong. Jesus, we pray in your victorious name that you've raised from the dead and have conquered our sin and have defeated that roaming, raging tiger in our hearts. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.